Well, it's, uh, it's a high bar to follow, isn't it? Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Stuart Starr, I'm the lead pastor here, and it's my joy to be able to open up uh, God's Word some more, because it's already been opened up today uh, in song uh, and in these amazing presentations that we've had in front of us. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us uh, to be able to hear this good news, and, uh, and we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to turn our hearts and minds to your son, Jesus. We ask today that we might see him afresh, and just like the shepherds, just like Mary, just like Elizabeth, we might be changed by meeting your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, who here likes a good story? Does anyone here like a good story? Show of hands. Yeah, we love good stories. Love a good story. Here's, uh, here's a story that I grew up absolutely loving. Uh, it's called The Magician's Nephew. Does anyone know this by C.S. Lewis? Now, this is very special to me. Um, this is the actual book that my mum used to read us at our dinner table. So every night when we had dinner, mum would get a book out and she would read to us kids as we ate every single night. And so, uh, so this story is very, very precious to me. I'll let you know a little secret. As awesome as it is, Narnia doesn't exist. Keep opening your cupboards. Have a look. Okay. Check it out. Okay. But it doesn't exist. Okay. It's a a made-up story, a beautiful story. It's a story I love so deeply, but it's it's made up. And today, we're going to continue to explore a story. It's a story in in a book. I mean... This a book, that's a book. We're going to explore the story in this book. And I want to tell you that it's a different story to the one in The Magician's Nephew. This is an incredible story. And like we've heard from from Isaiah, it's a story that is filled with promises, some of them a thousand years old. It's a story with supernatural agents and uh, the shepherds just told us about an encounter with some of them. It's a story that's the foundation of Western civilization. It's a story about God. And I want to draw you into this story today. I want, I want you to engage with this story today. I want to ask you, how, how, how do we make sense of this story? I think we have a problem. I think we have a problem in making sense of this particular story. And uh, I've, don't worry, I've got a diagnosis for you, so that, that's okay. Here's the diagnosis. Uh, the diagnosis, uh, this is a very special diagnosis. Uh, the diagnosis is SGS. We all have a collective case of SGS. Oh, that's clear then. Okay, no problem. So the, the problem is that we have the wrong God. We have the wrong God. We haven't got God right. We have a case of SGS. And SGS has a number of different symptoms, and so I'm I'm going to work through a couple of them with you. Uh, The first one might be helpfully illustrated by this. Now, it's entirely possible uh, that you don't know who that big green guy is. So if there are any people under, I don't know, 20 maybe here? Does, Does anyone know who's that? Yes? Good man, absolutely spot on. That is Hulk. And uh, he's actually standing over someone for bonus points. Can anyone tell me who he's standing over? Oh, my goodness. Bernie, you're jumping out of your seat. Who's he standing over? Loki. Okay. Loki. And, and, and so everyone here is going, oh, good. That makes it perfectly clear. One of them is called Hulk and the other one's called Loki. Well, Loki has just come and said, dull creature, I am a god. <laughs> 
and Hulk has just picked him up and bashed him like this until he's into the ground. And then Hulk emits these incredible words, puny God. Fantastic. So here's our first diagnosis of SGS. Our first diagnosis of SGS is small God syndrome. So many of us have a case of small God syndrome. When it comes to the Christmas story, the reason we're not blown away by it is that we have someone who by all intents and purposes is a puny God. Wow, God's born in a manger. And we go, oh, that's not really exciting. Lots of people get born. Why, why, why is it so extraordinary that we say God was born in a manger? Well, you, you remember how everything starts. At the, the beginning of this story, do, do you remember how it all starts? It starts with creation. It starts with blackness and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and then probably the most famous line in any story in the history of the world. What, what's that line? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And God said what? He said, let there be light. And there was light. From nothing burst forth into being this extraordinary, amazing, seemingly endless universe that we have around us. It came forth by word. It wasn't a matter of diving into the Lego box and, and finding the right pieces and following the instructions and assembling. It, it wasn't a work of years. It wasn't an incredible labor. It was speech and creation burst forth. The God that we worship is truly extraordinary. He spoke and creation came to be. And it says of his son who was there with him, and we heard these words read to us, through him all things were made. Through him, all things were made. There is nothing that has come to be that was not made in, through, by, and for our glorious, amazing, majestic, and incredible God. All things were made through him. And so then when we come to the Christmas story, we hear these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And you think to yourself, hey, how is it possible for God to organize a star to rise at just the right time when his son was born a thousand kilometers away? SGS. The God who put every star in the heavens can surely put a marker in the sky to alert astrologers to the birth of his son, can he not? And so his story is written in the stars. And that's no surprise to us because of the majesty and the wonder and awe of our God. See, if I have small God syndrome, then I have a God who is not worthy of being worshipped. 
Worship is when we pour our hearts out, we say, God, you're the king and not me. And if I have a small God, I might not be tempted to pick him up and fling him around like the Hulk, but I will not fall on my knees and worship him, give him the best of me. I won't worship a small God. And so I wanna encourage you, here's here's the antidote to the first of our small God syndrome problems. I, I wanna encourage you, have you been out under the night sky for a while? Well, I, I, don't, I don't get out so much because the kids don't let me get out very much. It, at night, they're inside, so we have to be inside. Anyway. But for some of you freed people, what you could do is go out, go outside and spend some time. I want to encourage you to go and look. Do you have a small God? Spend some time under that velvety blackness when you get away from all the city and all of our multitude of lights, spend some time under that velvety blackness and look up and see if you don't feel small. And as you feel smaller, he will feel bigger. Small God syndrome, spend a night under the stars. There's another problem that we have that fits these letters helpfully. Let me give you another symptom. Superhero God syndrome. See, the, the wonder of Superman is that he can't die, right? So he's bulletproof. He's got laser eyes. I always think that could be a little bit awkward at the wrong moment. But, but, but he's Superman, right? He's, he's unbreakable. He's unbeatable. He's undefeatable. He's Superman. And some of us, it's the opposite of the small God syndrome. Is superhero God syndrome, right? The God who is untouchable the untouchable God. But that's not at all what you've heard this morning. It's not at all what this story has to tell us about the God who came to visit us. Not an untouchable alien. No, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. God in human form lived with us. That's extraordinary. See, Superman comes and and, and he he tricks us with his glasses and we think he's Clark Kent. Jesus doesn't need a disguise. He puts on real human flesh. He's recognizably human. In fact, most people don't mistake him for God. They mistake him for a, a mere man, don't they? He truly comes in human flesh. And so we see this account in Luke 2. They went to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, here's the thing. I know Christmas is so obvious, so familiar to us that we don't notice. Anyone who's familiar with Superman can tell me, how does Superman arrive on Earth? Spaceship. So a capsule, very good, I'll stand corrected. An amazing capsule that comes from what planet? Krypton, fantastic, okay, great, we're doing really well. Okay, so the baby comes in a space capsule. Do you know how the Son of God comes? In a womb. I don't know if you've thought about how extraordinary it is, but God deigns to have his son enter the world through a birth canal from a human womb. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's it's not a crashing spaceship. It's the thing you and I 
have done from a mother into this world. And so he's so human that he can be born, not teleported down. He's so human. Do you remember that King Herod went to kill the babies in the town? We haven't read that part of the story today. But the reason he went to kill the babies was he wanted to cut off this potential king that the Magi had said had come. And so how do you defeat the son of God who's come into the world? You get your armies. No, no, no. You just kill kids. They're so vulnerable. You kill children. He's so wrapped in human flesh that he's actually vulnerable enough to die. And more extraordinarily, Jesus comes to grow up. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't get beamed down at 33 and starts teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't do that. I assume, let you a little secret, I assume it wasn't a silent night. I reckon Jesus cried. I reckon he took milk from his mother's breast. I reckon he pooped his swaddling clothes. Real humanity. See, if we have a superhero God, he's not able to understand our weakness, is he? So how does Superman get me? Oh, you can't lift that bus. Puny human. But when I have a God wrapped in human form, truly human, he gets my weakness. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to weep at his friend's funeral. Wrapped in flesh, my God gets me. And so if you want to get him, I want to encourage you to hold the hand of a newborn. Not least of all, because it's great. Go and see up close again the vulnerability of new birth. That's our God. Not the superhero invulnerable, but the vulnerable, the small, wrapped in human flesh. Here's another problem. He's funny, I think, right? But, but here's the thing, another expression of SGS, the standoff God syndrome, right? So who's this? Morgan Freeman, who is God, apparently, everything, he's always God. Okay, if anyone's God, Morgan Freeman is God. See, but here's the thing, in, uh, what's this, um, Bruce Almighty, yeah? God's just minding his own business until Bruce gets angry enough to challenge God, and then God manages to intervene and say, hey, Brucey, I've got a job for you, etc., etc." Anyway, you've seen the movie. But, but here's the thing. Until that moment, Bruce is living his life. God's doing his own thing, right? We've got to stand off God. God has to actually arrange a meeting with Bruce to have a chat with him because otherwise God isn't there and God can't be seen and he can't be spoken to. We have a stand off God syndrome. But you know one of the most amazing things, I think, about Jesus' life is that when he finally revealed himself, when he finally started teaching, he went back to his hometown, and you know what people said? Isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't he the brother of James and John? Isn't his whole family here? And it says, and they took offense at him. Why? I reckon, say, say he becomes a, a man, say about 13, right? 
takes over his dad's business or works with his dad about 13. We reckon he started his teaching ministry about 30-ish. So here's the thing, the thing that drives us all batty when we read our Bibles, right? What did Jesus do for 13 years? For 17 years, after he sort of became a man, joined his dad, before he started his teaching, what did he do? Pretty much nothing of note for us. He was a carpenter in a small town in the back area of of Israel. You have to ask why, don't you? Why? See, I reckon most of you have done some work at some point in time, yeah? And you've had good days and you've had bad days. You know what it is to have a great day at work. You know what it is to have a terrible day at work. You know what it is to hit your nail, uh, hammer with it on your thumb, with, you, know, you know what that's like. But see, if Jesus dropped down from heaven, fully formed in his bulletproof suit, and then died on the cross and then got zapped back up to heaven, and we go, oh God, when we're praying and we're crying out in our weakness and our suffering, in our sorrow, and we go, God, work sucks at the moment. And he goes, well, that's very awkward for humans, I guess. What if he did a trade for 17 years? What if he wasn't the center of anything? What if he was obedient to his dad? What if he just worked a job? Do you think Jesus gets me? Why the wait to get humanity? And the one who worked with wood and nails was so wrapped in our humanity that he took his humanity to the cross on our behalf. He was so wrapped in real life that he could really die for us and in our place. On the cross, people came up to him and they said, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him heaped insults on him. So even on the cross, people were looking at Jesus and judging his mere humanity and saying, weakling, you're so wrapped in vulnerable flesh that we think you're powerless. We can mock you. We can make fun of you there. And so I want you to know today that far from being a standoff God, Jesus was wrapped in real flesh and blood. And that enabled him to suffer a real death for you and I in our place for our sins. It's pretty good. So a standoff God syndrome would mean that we have a God who would not care for our worries, who wouldn't care for us. And I want to suggest tonight, uh, tonight this, this morning, uh, that you remember back. Can anyone remember the Olympics, Sydney Olympics? Some of you probably weren't born then, so that's okay. Sorry about that. Uh, those of you, did anyone go to the Olympics? Put your hands up. Yeah? Was it all right? It's pretty awesome. I, I remember it being a really unique time in our lives. But can you, can you think in your heads how, how long ago that was? How long? 17 years, hey? I just want you to have that moment where you have that experience and you go, 17 years being a carpenter, right? It's a long time, isn't it? 
It's a lot of life to have lived. And so all I want to do is for you to remember the reality of Jesus clothed in flesh, waiting for his father's plan to be fulfilled. He gets our life. He lived a life like we live. There's one more I want to put before you, and maybe some of you are in this place this morning. I'm I'm sure I've told you, I, I was in India many years ago for a friend's wedding. And I remember sitting in the cab and looking on the dashboard and seeing, uh, you know, Ganesh there and various other little bits and pieces. I think it's someone else's God syndrome, yeah? How nice that you have an ornament on the front windscreen of your car. It's not doing a lick of anything, really. It's a good holder for your flowers. In my mind, someone else's God is absolutely irrelevant, right? Someone else's God. And for some of you sitting here today hearing about Jesus Christ, you're thinking that's somebody else's God. I'm not really particularly interested or worried about him. Does anyone know what's happening in this picture here? Someone can tell me? Well, what's going on? Oh, in the, in, I see you, Ian. I see your hand, mate, in the parents' room. I can't hear you, but uh, uh, would someone like to have a go? What's happening? Wheel balance. Okay, wheel balance. Anyone know why you need to balance your wheels? Sorry? So they're not out of balance. Outstanding, fantastic, great answer. That's the sort of insight that we're looking for here. Great, okay. Here's the thing. Apparently, there's this thing in the middle of your wheel called an axle, and what runs through there, everything spins around it. If it's out of whack, it's annoying. It's unsafe. It might cause you all sorts of problems. You'll have the sense without probably knowing that everything isn't quite right. If it's not the middle, the center, then you have a problem. Today I want to tell you that Jesus Christ wants to be the center of your life and that when he isn't, you're out of alignment, you're out of balance and everything will have that sense that something is not right. So the question then is where do you place Jesus? Where do you place Jesus? He wants to be at the center. If you have him somewhere else and everything else is rotating around that, it's going to be pretty awkward. I want to give you three options for where you can place Jesus. Uh, this is in Japan, okay? Because of course you knew there was a KFC in Japan, didn't you? This is an important Christmas tradition I'm about to share with you, okay? Do you know what percentage of Christians are in Japan? 1%. Did you know that a bloke called uh, Okawara, in 1974, working in a uh, a restaurant in KFC, decided, you know what, he was overhearing some uh, foreigners speaking about the fact they were missing Christmas and they were missing turkey. And so he thought, business opportunity? I know what I'm going to do. I am going to sell... He actually literally had a, a dream. In the dream, he heard the words, party bucket. And so what he decided was, what he decided was, I know, on Christmas, I'm going to help all the foreigners out and put some chicken in a bucket and call it the Christmas celebration bucket. And it's going to be huge. And do you know what, today, it is huge. Although there's only 1% of Christians in Japan, apparently, stop the show, you need to order 10 days in advance in order to get your Christmas party bucket from KFC. Now, for them, Jesus is an historical oddity. No one believes in him, or very few, 1% believe in him. But there's a practice that's come up. And so Jesus is an historical oddity, but we eat chicken at Christmas. Is Jesus an historical oddity 
for you. Or maybe, I love this one, maybe, <laughs> you know who that is, don't you? It's Santa Claus, fantastic, painted by Haddon Sundblom in 1931, who was working for an organisation with very, very good aims in mind. Does anyone know who he was working for? Coca-Cola, fantastic, okay. He was the guy who painted Santa in this way as the big fat guy with the beard and the red stuff. And although it said, if you do your Googling, go and Google, knock yourself out. I did a lot of reading. He didn't create Santa Claus looking like this, but he did make him popular. Every year for the next, however it is, 33 years, he did a different painting of Santa that was used in advertising for Coca-Cola. So you want to know why you think Santa Claus is fat with a beard and black belt and all the rest of it? It's this guy selling Coke. Now, is Santa Claus... No, I was going to say, is Santa Claus real? But we won't ask that. We'll ask that hypothetically. Uh, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, is Jesus an historical fallacy? As in just a nice story that we tell our kids to sell Coca... No, not to sell Coca-Cola. See, this bloke is co-opted for a financial gain, and he's made up, doesn't exist. Is Jesus in the historical fallacy position for you? I'd say he bears some investigation because here's a rock that was found in uh, Caesarea in 1961, and on it says Pontius Pilate, and you think, whatever. And I say, do you know in this book here, it says that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that before they dug up this, this stone, no one knew that Pilate existed. It only, he only existed in the Bible. And so we dig up the stone and what do we find? Independent, solid stone evidence that this story is about a man who really lived, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate for our sins in our place. He is in fact an historical reality. And today I want to ask you to think about his place in your life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, all history, from Isaiah, from creation, Isaiah, all the way through to Jesus' death and resurrection, right the way to today, all history is the account of God's love for you. It's his story. Do you have a case of someone else's God syndrome? If you do, you've probably never bothered to think too much about it. I mean, why would you think about a God who's somebody else's God? And I want to say today, he needs to be your God. And I want to challenge you to spend some time to examine his claims. And today, I have got somewhere, oh, here it is, something to give you. I want to give you a book. This one here, it's on the back, right up there, on the table at the back. You can take it for free. It's called The Essential Jesus. It'll take you about 45 minutes to read. It's the account of Jesus' life. I want you to check him out for yourself. And uh, once you've read that, you'll be really excited about Jesus. You will. And you want to ask questions. So, so we're running a course in early February called Jesus for the Curious, and I want to invite you to come and do it with me. Ask your questions. Bring your inquiring mind and find out who he is. In a moment... I'm going to ask you to fill in a card like this. And I'd love you to say, hey, can you give me a copy of The Century Jesus because I forgot to pick it up from the back? Don't worry, you'll remember. Card in the thing at the back, pick up The Essential Jesus. That's easy. Or you might like to say, hey, I'm really interested in that course you talked about. Can I come? Remind me in February because I've got Christmas brain on and I won't remember anything. No problems. I can remind you. 
See, I want to tell you this morning, my Jesus is worthy of worship. I want to tell you that my Jesus is vulnerable. I want to tell you that my Jesus is engaged in the real world in a way that means he gets you and he gets me. I want to tell you that my Jesus is central to me and I want him to be central for you. I want to tell you today that Christmas is good news. It's good news. It really is. It's good news. Problem is, if you're uh, reading The Magician's Nephew, you've got a case of small God syndrome. If you're thinking that's what this is about, but it's not, you've heard today that instead of small God syndrome, I want you to know that the Son of God saves. And I'm going to pray that he would save you today if he hasn't already. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the incredible way that you have come into this world in humility, in vulnerability, to engage with us, to die for our sin, to rise so that you can be king over us and for us. And I pray today, Father, for those who might never have decided that Jesus is their king yet. Father, that they might choose to do that today. I want to pray for those of us who've had Jesus our king for years, that you would break any arrangement of those letters, SGS, that limits our view of worshipping and honouring you today. I pray, Father, you'd help us to lift our eyes to you and that we would do this to the praise and honour of your son, who is good news for us this day. Amen.